0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode three, where we will wrap up our history prior to the beginning of the war. And uh, just as a little announcement, I would like to mention that I did create a website. So that is Live now, and it is in the episode description, and that that is where I will be posting any kind of pictures or maps or anything. So um, that's what we're going to go through. I know I said uh, I would post through the Patreon, but uh, I lied. So we're going to do uh, the website. So, and just as another quick note, I know you know we this is the third episode, and we've we've run pretty quickly through a lot of stuff here, and you know you could probably make an entire podcast series on, on this stuff here so far. So um, just, I know we've been running pretty quickly just to get us up and going. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more, I think more details and things that uh, to some of this stuff, but uh, just in case you're, anyone is upset, I glossed over something. So, you know, just, just as a quick note there, but without further ado, let's get going on a few more things there that are, are going to get us right up to the war here. We left off last week with the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and this is going to set a few things in motion. First, it's going to make a lot of members of the Whig Party really, really mad. And second, it's actually going to spark some violence in the Kansas Territory. Uh, So let's, let's go ahead and look at that one first. We know this period as Bleeding Kansas, and this is going to pit... Missouri slaveholders and supporters of slavery known as border ruffians or bushwhackers against your free soilers or or jayhawkers. Both sides would find themselves in the new territory attempting to influence the vote for slavery. So a lot of times you get border ruffians who are going to cross the border and stuff the ballot in order for pro-slavery legislation to pass. This would come to be known as the lecompton constitution so that's what uh, they sort of influenced to to pass it's going to be repealed after a new voting in 1858 but for at least a little bit of time it was allowed to stand even given potentially uh, as they say sus these days uh, voting practices by 1855 the abolitionists had set up their own government in lawrence kansas and then in 1856, the border ruffians performed what is known as the Sack of Lawrence, where several ride into town and burn a pro abolitionist newspaper, uh, but there are no casualties on either side. Still, there needed to be a response in the eyes of the Jayhawkers, and that's going to come in the form of John Brown. A little bit of background on John Brown he was born in Connecticut in 1800 but moved to several states throughout his life. Brown is going to fail in many business ventures and vocations, eventually declaring bankruptcy in 1842. The one thing he was really good at was fathering children, of which he did have 20. So a lot of kids there, two wives, 20 kids. In 1849, he moved to the black community of North Elba, New York. Brown would set up his own farm in the community, and in his words, would become a kind father to them, the other residents there in the free black community. Already having been raised by an anti-slavery father, Brown would become involved in the Underground Railroad as well. He would work hard to assist escaped slaves and free blacks alike. When violence started to erupt in Kansas, that was where the abolitionist was called to. Brown and his sons would gain vengeance for Lawrence in late May of 1856, by forcing five supporters of slavery out of their homes in the middle of the night before murdering them in cold blood. James Townsley's account of the murders paints them in a particularly brutal light. In one instance, John Brown kills one man with a revolver, and his sons kill more victims using swords. Interesting to note that none of the five actually owned slaves, but they were certainly supporters of the institution. Brown would go on to raid into Missouri, killing an additional slave owner and freeing 11 slaves as well. More skirmishing would occur with Brown's men and pro-slavery forces. A reprisal raid by the border ruffians would actually see one of John Brown's sons dead. So violence on both sides here. Eventually, President Pierce would send John White Geary, future Union General, to Kansas to restore order. With things getting a little too hot to handle, Brown would depart for New England so that he could raise funds for his planned war on the South. Violence was not strictly limited to the Kansas Territory, however. In one of the more famous incidents in the Capitol, Senator Charles Sumner would give a two-day speech on the evils of slavery and denounce slave owners and Missouri border ruffians alike. In the speech, Sumner, who is from Massachusetts, Uh, would describe slavery as a mistress for a senator from South Carolina, Andrew Butler. Butler's nephew, Preston Brooks, was not a happy camper. Brooks would confront Sumner in the Capitol just three days later and beat him almost to death with a cane. You heard that right, but I'm going to go ahead and say it again. He beat him with a stick. (laughs) And, you know, could you even imagine if that sort of thing happened today, like, it's just sort of crazy to think, but it would certainly make C-SPAN a lot more interesting, and it's sort of, a I guess, a positive, I suppose, in that regard. But anyway, back to the story here. Brooks was apparently very proud of himself, and he even told a reporter that he had given Sumner about 30 first-rate stripes. As if open conflict in Kansas was not enough, Washington, it seemed, was also ready to fight. While John Brown usually gets a majority of the press for being a leader in Bleeding Kansas, uh, there was also another interesting figure in James Montgomery. Now, James Montgomery would lead forces against U.S. troops in the area in 1858. That same year, he would clash with pro-slavery forces. In retaliation, the border ruffians would kill 11 free staters in a similar fashion to John Brown. Montgomery would try to burn down The hotel where allegedly the plot was hatched to to kill those individuals. In 1860, an expedition was sent to capture Montgomery, but they were unsuccessful. It is speculated that Montgomery was in cahoots with the troops that were trailing him, so lack of capture is probably not surprising there. At the start of the war, he would join Union forces going on to command a brigade of colored troops. Montgomery is actually depicted in the 1989 Civil War movie classic, Glory. And uh, you can look through IMDB for who that was, but um, he is depicted in the movie, uh, in the scene where they uh, burn the southern town. So uh, that that would be him. Now, sometime in the future, I would like to take a look at the Civil War as it is shown through cinema and maybe even review some movies, but I may add this to the Patreon feed. Uh, still not sure exactly but uh, i i do like movies and certainly civil war movies are fascinating so uh, i would like to do that in the future uh, and you know maybe it is on the patreon feed but you know either way not really sure if anyone should be deprived of my super hot take about how boring the entire middle of the movie gods and generals is but i don't know we'll see To wrap up on Bleeding Kansas, 1859 would see a conclusion to the violence. Overall, approximately 55 people would die in the conflict that many consider to be the actual start of the Civil War. While this number, by comparison to some of the battles we're going to take a look at, is going to be relatively small, the significance of both sides willing to resort to violence is very important. It is also a preview of what is to come. This is certainly a very long, long way from those good old days of compromise that we talked about in earlier episodes. And this might seem like a little bit of a softball, but looks like we aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. And yes, for sure, I did laugh a whole lot to myself about that one. So just in case you were wondering. Let's look at the Whig Party now. Now we really have not talked too much about political parties so far. We mentioned the Federalists, the Know-Nothing Party, and now the Free Soilers. Recently, sure, but we have been going over some prominent Whig figures without really labeling them as such. William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, and the great compromiser himself, Henry Clay, were all Whigs. But why the name? Why Whigs? The name Whigs actually comes from the English Anti-Monarchist Party. Her old friend Andrew Jackson was considered by some to be a tyrant, and hence the name of the opposing political party. In fact, I think it is interesting and fitting that the current English party, the Liberal Democrats, was formed from the Liberal Party, which was formed from Whigs. The Whig Party of the United States would be concerned mostly with moral reform. Many abolitionists would be Whigs, as opposed to the Democrats, who had a pretty strong hold on the southern slaveholding states. Northern members would be so dissatisfied with the Kansas-Nebraska Act that they would form a new political party. Popular sovereignty would seem to many to be Congress refusing to enforce policy on the states. We talked about the Organic Acts that specified how a territory would be governed. So it would make sense that lack of control and leaving it to the hands of anyone who moves into the state would be less appealing. During Bleeding Kansas, we mentioned that slave supporters would cross the border into Kansas. In fact, large parties came from abroad, most notably that pesky South Carolina. That could be a disturbing precedent to set for the future for any who oppose slavery, especially in these new territories that could potentially become states. could just keep repeating that over and over again. For this reason, the Kansas-Nebraska Act essentially destroys the Whig Party. Out of the ashes rises the new Republican Party, named for Thomas Jefferson's old Democratic Republicans. Whigs against slavery, free soilers, and Northern Democrats would be the makeup. In May of 1854, the first Republican convention was held in Wisconsin. A mere two months later, the newly formed Republicans actually aided the Kansas situation by investigating the Lecompton Constitution, leading to a new vote that would overturn and reject it in favor of a new free-soil-friendly Constitution. Now, you remember a minute ago when I mentioned John Brown, right? Well, he's going to do something that will strike fear into Southerners that goes beyond simply murdering a few supporters of slavery in Kansas. Harper's Ferry, is a town that is in what is now West Virginia where the Potomac and Shenandoah rivers meet. In 1859 it was part of the state of Virginia and housed the only armory in the southern states. There's actually going to be an arsenal and an armory in Harper's Ferry so needless to say we can just assume there are a lot of weapons in Harper's Ferry so that's what John Brown is going to be after. Brown and 23 of his followers, known as the Liberation Army, would arrive in Maryland and then launch a raid, seizing the armory on the night of October 16, 1859. Frederick Douglass had learned of John Brown's plan and heavily advised against such an action. The raid was almost doomed from the outset. Being a slave in northern Virginia was not the same as being on a cotton plantation in the Deep South it was not really a great place to start a rebellion, in other words. Hostages were taken, including the great-grandnephew of George Washington. But Brown was no military genius. He actually let a train leave Harper's Ferry, which would sound the alarm further down the line. The Word would reach all the way to Washington. Local militia units would respond to the raid, and soon skirmishing would take place all throughout the town. Unfortunately, During the fighting, one free black man was actually killed by shots from the Liberation Army. Eventually, Brown and his followers were forced to barricade themselves in an engine house that stood on the armory grounds. During the night of the 17th, two of John Brown's sons died, and one was apparently making too much noise, so John Brown reportedly told him to die like a man. I've also seen this quoted several different ways. I like shut up and die like a man. That's also a good one. But, needless to say, Father of the Year, John Brown, certainly was not. Colonel Robert E. Lee arrives on the 18th with a detachment of U.S. Marines and a young cavalry lieutenant by the name of Jeb Stewart. Militia units would allow the Marines to take the lead on storming the engine house, which they did, capturing or killing the defenders and taking Brown into custody. He would be tried for treason in Virginia and found guilty. Before the execution could take place, James Montgomery actually hatched a plot to try to free Brown, and interestingly enough, Brown declined. He would do more for the cause being a martyr than it would if he was rescued. And despite this plan, John Brown is hanged on December 2nd. In the crowd was a young actor named John Wilkes Booth, who apparently was very taken with the way in which John Brown handled his execution. His last words actually being, make it quick. The significance of the raid is pretty important toward our story and the beginning of the war. Militia units would be mobilizing throughout Virginia and the rest of the South. Fear over insurrection was real, as well as Northern funding of such. It was found that John Brown had been supported by the Secret Six, a group of influential Northerners. This would not go well for calming the South. Past and present... There is a little bit of a controversy over John Brown. Many see him in very different ways. He's been described as a great revolutionary and also a terrorist at the same time. It is interesting that there was a study from a psychologist who declared that John Brown likely was bipolar. Actually, there was a movement for a stay of execution based on the grounds of insanity for John Brown, so maybe he would not have been executed in that sense. Um, but I think it is interesting that we can take a look at this through the lens of our modern eyes and say that John Brown was on the right side of history and therefore, um, he's a good guy, I guess we can say, but, you know, oftentimes there's a lot of murky, you know, individuals out there. So, um, you might not be good or bad, uh, based off of that. So it is clear though, that his actions are pretty important to our story, And they are important to the eventual beginning of the Civil War. So that much certainly we can can say is true. Now, I don't think that we can move forward without also mentioning the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott was born into slavery in 1799. In 1830, he would move to St. Louis, Missouri, before moving to Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory, all with Dr. John Emerson, an army surgeon, who purchased Scott. Emerson would die in 1843, leaving his slaves to his wife. After refusing to be granted freedom through purchase, Scott and his wife Harriet would file lawsuits for freedom. Missouri law actually stipulated that any person taken to a free territory would become free and could not be enslaved upon their return. The case made its way through the system to the Supreme Court in 1856, In 1857, unfortunately, the court ruled against Scott, denying him his freedom. Chief Justice Roger Taney, born in 1777 in Maryland, would write that all people of African descent were not citizens and could not sue in a federal court. Even with this setback, Scott had actually been sold to the son of his original owner, who emancipated him and his family three months prior to the decision. The case gained large amounts of attention, stirring the hornet's nest even further. Despite being on the wrong side of history in the Dred Scott decision, it would be Chief Justice Roger Taney who would swear the sixteenth president into office. His name, of course, is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky in 1809. At twenty two, he uprooted to Illinois where he had a more working-class background. Lincoln would split rails, work in a store as well as a postmaster, surveyor, and operator of a whiskey still. He served in the militia during the Black Hawk War in 1832, and while he does not see action, he does witness the aftermath of a skirmish. He would move to Springfield in 1837 to practice law, but obviously had his eyes on bigger stuff. His law partner would be quoted as saying of Lincoln that his ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. In 1842, he would marry Mary Todd, who came from a prominent slave-owning family in Kentucky. Actually, two of Mary Todd's half-sisters were actually married to future Confederate generals even. Despite this, Lincoln would be opposed to slavery and in time would come to realize that the war would be definitively to end it. The 1858 senatorial election would put Lincoln in the national spotlight. He would run against none other than the little giant himself, Stephen A. Douglas. Douglas was seeking his third term as senator in Illinois and was well known at this point, especially after the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He would agree to debate Lincoln seven times, and due to this popularity, the debates would receive much in terms of attention. I think it's a little funny that Stephen Douglas in many ways is responsible for Lincoln's rise. I also think it would be interesting to see the six foot four Lincoln stand next to the five foot four Douglas. From the debates, we get the famous Lincoln quote of a house divided cannot stand. Lincoln saw slavery as morally wrong and would advocate against its expansion. Abe would point to the Declaration of Independence and the line that all men were created equal in his arguments. Furthermore, the federal government would be responsible for ending slavery. This is important to note because popular sovereignty was the argument of Stephen Douglas. Power should lie on the local level rather than the federal, in his view. He also argued that the Founding Fathers were slaveholders, an argument we hear even today. Douglas actually argued back that Lincoln's approach would actually lead to civil war. Like, could you even imagine that? Lincoln would narrowly lose the election, but the gears of the Republican Party and those of the nation were definitely turning. Republicans would see an opportunity in Abraham Lincoln. Already, he was widely known and appealed to many for having come from a working-class background. Honest Abe, which is something we hear a lot today, refers not to Lincoln's inability to tell a lie, but rather it refers to an honest day's work, something Lincoln was definitely familiar with. With the 1860 election on the horizon, the party had an interesting decision to make. Options for the presidency included William Seward, who would help to navigate the purchase of Alaska in 1867, Salmon P. Chase, who helped to found the Republican Party, and Simon Cameron, a former know-nothing and railroad man. All these candidates were seen as either radical where it acquired enemies already within the ranks of politics. Seward was actually seen as the leader of the Republicans, but would keep a tight lip on his beliefs, causing some to suspect him of Southern sympathy. Lincoln was able to win the nomination riding on the back of his famous debates with Douglas in 1858. And actually, just to speak toward how great a speaker he was, he was nominated and invited to New York to give a speech, and this speech was so good, apparently, that a lot of people argue it was the speech that propelled him to become the nomination for the Republican Party. I think this is a good time to mention that Lincoln was just the right amount of known. In many ways, he benefited from being relatively unknown, as opposed to, say, Douglas, who would flip-flop on issues depending on who he was speaking with. Lincoln was definitely the candidate of the youth, young Republicans forming into groups that became known as the Awakes. The various groups of Awakes would march with torches and military formation in northern cities, definitely making the southern states even more uncomfortable. In Texas, tempers would boil over, resulting in the lynchings of many blacks and northern whites alike. Speaking of our old friend Stephen Douglas, he would seek the Democratic nomination for president. Republicans obviously were sour on Douglas, and southern Democrats were also not happy. Douglas had helped to defeat the LeCompton Constitution. Popular sovereignty would mean to follow the majority, which for Southern slave supporters was all well and good if the majority leaned in the right way. If it didn't, well, that's another story. Southern Democrats would nominate future Confederate General John C. Breckinridge. Breckinridge had served in the Mexican-American War before becoming a member of the House of Representatives from Kentucky. Most recently, he had served as vice president under Buchanan and thus was an attractive option in the South. John Bell would also run as a member of the Constitutional Union Party. This new party was made up of conservative Whigs who were against secession. Bell would argue that the Constitution protected slavery, actually earning him victories in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. The writing was on the wall, however, the wrong presidential winner, would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Lincoln would, in fact, win with 180 electoral votes and 40% of the popular vote. This was particularly impressive considering he was left off the ballot in most southern states. Breckinridge would receive 72 electoral votes, but only 18 of the popular. Bell would come in with 39 electoral votes, and Douglas with 12. For those of us who are actually good at math, that means that Lincoln would still carry the electoral votes, even if there was one united front against him. On December 20th, sixty, five days after Lincoln is elected, South Carolina will secede from the Union. Robert Anderson, federal commander of the troops in Charleston, would move from Fort Moultrie to Fort Sumter as a response on December 26th. On December 30th, militia units from South Carolina seized the federal arsenal in Charleston. January and February of 1861 would see Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas all follow suit. While not all of the Confederate states had announced secession, the stage was certainly set. I think we have seen a drastic change from compromise to debate, now violence, so we should have a good understanding of how we got to the point where shots are officially fired next week. We can go ahead and take a pause right there, and as mentioned, next week we are going to fire those first shots. Some details I would like to circle back around to in the coming weeks as both North and South ready themselves for years of conflict to come. I think that although we have had a brief rundown, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, of these events and details, it has actually set us up fairly nicely to move forward. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review uh, specifically on Apple podcasts. That would be nice. And once again, your feedback is greatly appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. And of course, in the description, we have the new website, as well as a link to the Patreon and Venmo. Thank you all so much and have a great week.